This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, Redeemer. It is well. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 129, page 518 in the Pew Bible. Page 518, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, I had 150 psalms to choose from, and I chose that one. I don't know what that says about me, but hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Let me uh, pray for us, and we'll jump in. So, Father God, if I uh, check in, I've, I come to this pulpit with... Um, a lot of burdens, a lot of thoughts kind of rolling through my mind, um, some, some real burdens for us this morning. And I pray that you would line those up with your word this morning. Uh, would you speak to us this morning? Which is, a, which is a way of saying, would you get me out of the way and would your word be spoken right to where each one of us needs uh, your word to speak to us. I pray specifically this morning, God, would you bolster us as the people of God this morning? Would you bolster us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us confidence in who you are this morning? Would you give us confidence in who you are? Your character, your strength, your stability, and give us perseverance bolster us up, strengthen us as the family of God, no matter what we face. And even as I say that, like letting your word speak to us this morning, I, I recognize like, man, we just got done listening to a psalm with particular words that kind of maybe many of us, probably most of us in the room would just rather remove from this psalm. Like they kind of just, like it just seems impolite. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's illustrations here that we can't quite grasp onto or they feel hard. 
maybe we can't relate to them. So God, this morning, would you bridge those gaps? Would you show us why this is here? Show us why we need this. And I'm praying real specifically, God, would you turn this uh, from just words on a page or a psalm that we read through really quickly because it's short to a song in our heart? Like, would you turn this into a song that gives us like endurance for this week, for this month, for this year, uh, because we need it. I pray that in your name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> hey, so we have a regular saying in my house. We have several regular sayings. One of them is, hey, we do hard things together. That's a regular saying that I'm always kind of sewing into my kids, whether they're like cleaning their room or supposed to be cleaning their room. We sent them to the room 20 minutes ago. The room's a disaster. They're sitting in the corner now, kind of like mopey. And there's just a flood of toys everywhere. And you come in and you come up beside them. Hey, what's going on? Uh, it's just, uh, they feel overwhelmed. And I put my hand on their back and I'm like, hey, I know this is hard. This is overwhelming. But you've kind of done it to yourself. But <laughs> there's a lot here to get through. And for, you know, a three-year-old or a four-year-old, it is a lot. It's hard. And I tell them, hey, this is hard. This is really, really tough, but you can do this. Like, it's good for you. And we, what do we do? We do hard things together. Even yesterday, we went mountain biking as a family. We go mountain biking quite a bit as a family. And uh, the interesting thing about going mountain biking is, you know, if we went on a six-mile ride, which is what we did yesterday on trails, there, I mean, you're on a trail, so you're all surrounded by trees. There's no easy escape. If you go three miles you're riding three miles back. You can walk your bike back three miles or ride your back, bike back three miles. The choice is yours. Either way, you've got three miles back to go. And invariably, no matter what we do, um, somewhere on the trip, on the ride, somebody you know, is having a hard time. One of my three girls is having a hard time. They're either with the climb, they've skinned their knee. Uh, maybe it's just a little too hot for them that day. They're whatever it is, and they just kind of come up against a wall and they start getting a little mopey. Um, I love watching Stella push through mountain biking. She's still pedaling, but she's kind of crying through the pain. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we'll pull over, take breaks and all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell them, hey, I know this is hard. This is good for you. This is good for you. We do hard things together. We're going to do this together. We can do this. And then they get back on and we carry on our way. We have a similar saying like that, even in our church family. We have a saying that we say from time to time. It goes something like, hey, we stand in the wind here. We stand in the wind as a church family, not shelter ourselves from it. And that came from a few years ago. We had this uh, guy, Tim, um, Tim Kimmel, come in and do a parenting seminar. And he shared this story about this project that started in the early 90s in the Arizona desert called the Biosphere. It's this um, this, this experiment that these scientists pulled off uh, in, the, in the desert where this group of scientists basically essentially created this giant bubble in the desert. And in that bubble, they put a rainforest, they put a hydroponic system. Is that how you say it, Tracy? She corrected me the other day. I was like, uh, anyway, hydroponic system, coral reef. Like oh, they put all this different stuff. They grew their own crops. They put animals in there. They also put enough trees in there to supply their own oxygen. And then the goal was to seal it up with the scientists living in there, I think for up to like a year or something, totally self-sustained. Uh, the goal was to like solve some stuff with climate change, try to experiment what it would look like to start different culinaries on, culinaries, colonies, colonies on Mars. Uh, so it was, a, it was a pretty big deal, lots of attention. 
But about a month into the project, after they'd sealed everything off, the oxygen levels began to plummet. They began to drop pretty significantly, even so much so that it became dangerous for them. Well, because of all the fanfare and all that was going on around it, they didn't want to admit like failure. So what they started doing is at night, they started pumping oxygen into the bubble, like under the radar so that nobody would notice. And they started doing that just to kind of keep things rolling. But eventually it got so bad that trees in the biosphere began toppling over. Trees started falling over. So they had to get to the spot. And not only that, there's a few other things that went wrong as well. And they had to admit defeat. And what they learned is, see, none of the scientists could figure out what was going on. Why did this happen? They, they calculated everything perfectly. It was all set up correctly. It should have worked. It puzzled them until they had an arborist come out and look at the tree's root systems and the outer layers of bark. And the verdict was that the biosphere lacked something that good, healthy trees needed. Wind. Wind. The lack of wind inside the biosphere caused a deficiency in the stress wood of the tree. See, stress wood helps a tree stand up strong, tough enough so it can mature. Without stress wood, the tree can grow quickly. It looks good, but it becomes weak quickly and it won't survive. In other words, trees need stress in order to thrive for the long run. And so do we. That's why we stand in the wind and we don't shelter ourselves from it. Standing in the wind is critical if you hope to persevere through hard times. And there's something about experiencing real resistance in our lives over time that builds resilience in us. See, perseverance is a critical part of Christian discipleship. You, you read about it all through scripture. Perseverance is a critical part of Christian discipleship because life is going to bring you lessons in the form of difficulties. But it's perseverance through these hardships that gives you a tough, durable kind of faith. Do you think of, when you think about like Christian life, do you think of it as tough like when you think about the Christian lifestyle, do you think of it as fragile, that it only flourishes when weather conditions are just right? Like Christians, how is it that you're going to persevere all the hardships that are promised to come your way? How are you going to make it to the end when you're facing a world that's bent on making life hard for you? Where do you get the grit necessary to overcome cultural resistance and say with the psalmist that we just read here that they have not prevailed against me? Like, how do you get that language on your lips? He says, I'm still here. What keeps it? Like, what keeps you from getting knocked off course in your Christian walk? Or, or, or maybe you're here this morning um, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and the way of Jesus uh, might seem thought-provoking to you. Maybe you love the, the love of Jesus, the way we build community here, the way we serve the poor, the way we support one another. But what about the toughness of Christianity? Like how many other fads have gone in and out in your very short lifetime? Yet Christians over the centuries have been gathering under the same truths, saying the same kinds of things, even singing many of the same kind of songs and consistently over and over showing up. It can be a misnomer in America that faith in Jesus is something that sheltered weak people with a small worldview kind of attach themselves to that it can only survive in the midst of ease, can only endure when the, like they're at the cultural center of what's going on, when things seem to just be going like just our way. And we all know public figures and even friends that have turned away from the faith. However, uh, in other countries, 
There are Christians every single day putting their lives on the line to follow Jesus. And, and, and like the church is exploding around the world, growing in some of the most tumultuous, difficult places in our world. It's growing right now, which makes sense to me. Like in a culture that is so wealthy like ours, doesn't stress personal responsibility on us, in a culture that deeply values like comfort and approval and ease when hard things come, like when they just pop into your life seemingly out of nowhere, there's a strong temptation just to go the route of least resistance. The, the route that seems easiest for us. And there simply isn't the same kind of consequences in our culture uh, that there used to be. If you didn't invest in your marriage, you just get another spouse. Like if you're at odds with your friends, just get new friends. Like get on Facebook, make some new friends, hang out. Like what, it's, it's easy, right? Um, if you don't like your job, like if you're struggling with your job, um, if if your passions and all of your desires aren't being expressed in your unique position at your job, just quit it and go find another, another one. Like, how many people have a job past five years anymore, right? Like, uh, if you disagree with your church, just go to another one down the street. Uh, there's all these different things that we can just take the easiest path, and we regularly avoid discomfort and move toward what seems easier in our lives, kind of without even noticing many times. But what I love about the Bible, what I love about Jesus, and what I love specifically about this psalm is it's so real. It's, it's really, really real. It's earthy. It's kind of gritty. It's really real for us. It is reality. And the reality is, is life is already hard. Like life is already hard, but when you follow Jesus, you add to it real battles and real hardships on top of that. And things in your life that would make your blood boil with anger and, and distress you, like get introduced when you follow Jesus. Like there's one phrase in this Psalm that sticks out to me that good taste might make some of us wish it would just be like deleted or removed. We're not really sure why it's there. It's in verse five. It may have stuck out to you when it was read. He says, may all who hate God's people be put to shame and turned backward. Or another way to say this would be, let them grovel in humiliation. Why did God allow that to be in his songbook? Like, why would God allow that to be said in his songbook of the Bible? Now, God isn't affirming us to just go out and begin cursing our enemies. Of course not. But he does seem to be saying that if you're hurting and facing real struggles in your life, if you're already angry, well, go ahead and tell me. Tell me what's inside of you. Tell me what's really going on inside of you. Go ahead and just say, if you're screwed up, don't pretend you're not screwed up. Reveal it. Like, let it out. Let, if, if you can't make it happen, don't pretend like it's happening. I want you to be real with me. What are you facing? This is real. This song then is an invitation to authenticity about how we really experience the Christian life, to really show up before God by bringing the anguish of your heart before him. But it's also about admitting that when we follow Jesus, then we have real enemies that desire to destroy the purposes of God. And when we align ourselves with Jesus, we're going to be caught in the crossfire. Like that's just reality. That's just part and parcel of it. So if this is the case, how do you grow perseverance in order to keep going? How are you not going to give up? How are you not going to fall over like those trees in the biosphere? How is it that you're going to endure and persevere to the end? 
So to walk through that, I want to walk through three, three points for us. Uh, we're going to answer that question by walking through the psalm with three movements. The reality to be faced, a truth to remember, and a God who sticks with us. So a reality to be faced, a truth to remember, and a God who sticks with us. So let's jump into a reality to be faced. Verse one, if you close your Bibles, Bibles open them back up. Um, look at verse one. <clears throat> he says, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. I mean, let's just stop right there. Like this is real life for Christians. Do you think that the faith in Jesus as this like fragile way of living that can only survive when everything's going smoothly and everything is just going our way, this is certainly not the view of the biblical writers. Like, listen to how Isaiah talks about the life of Jesus. Let's just go straight to Jesus, right? Isaiah 53, one. He grew up before God like a young plant, like a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant, and a root out on dry ground. He was looked down on and passed over, and he had no beauty that we would even desire him. He was a man that was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Like this is a portrait of extreme rejection and painful persecution. What, what could come from such poor, precarious beginnings? It, not much, it would seem. None of us would put much in this, right? Jesus began 40 days, like began his ministry with 40 days of temptation in the desert. He ended his life with this dreaded night of testing and trial. Then when all the temptations had failed to take him down, there was this brutal, brutal assault that turned his body into a torture chamber. Like this is the life of Jesus, Yet what does this text say a little further down? Isaiah 53, 10. Though it was the will of God to crush him, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And it goes on, these glorious promises to this person under such persecution. For he saw temptation, suffering, he saw death, but also resurrection life and the power to give life unbelievable. That's the life of Jesus. So what about Paul? Another hero in the faith in scripture? Like, is this abnormal for Christians? No. What about Paul? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three shows that Paul is talking about his devotion to following Jesus and telling others about him. And what does that get him? He says, far greater labors. In other words, I've done more for Christ than most. And what has that gotten me? He says, it's gotten me imprisonments, countless beatings, often near to death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was even stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in dangers from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily, daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches that I've started. Who's weak and I'm not? Who's made to, uh, to fall and I'm not indignant? Like this is Paul's life. He couldn't go anywhere. Like I just got done watching this season 
the latest season of Alone. I'm like, man, that must be tough. Those people had it easy reading Paul's list here. Man, what a list. Can you imagine living this kind of life? Can you imagine actually like living half of what he experienced? Now imagine that none of this had the power to push Paul off track. Like none of it bumped him out of alignment. None of it knocked him off. None of it blew him over and cracked him. None of it convinced him that he was somehow off track from how God had called him to pursue his life. Can you imagine living that with that kind of like stamina, that kind of resilience, that kind of perseverance that even all these horrible, like those things happen to us and we're going, God, we must be off track. Something must have gone wrong. Not Paul. Close to the end of his life, one of the last words he writes, he says, one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal to Jesus. Man, that's perseverance. That's perseverance. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me, Paul says. You see, the people of God are tough. The way of Jesus isn't just a fad that's taken up one century and then abandoned the next. It has survived the test of time. And this Psalm reminds us that um, when it comes to rejection and persecution and there's these, all these difficulties in your life, uh, they will come at the hands of other people. They will come to you at the hands of other people. That's, that's a promise for us, which is why God here lovingly gives us some truths to remember when those happen. Let's go on to this next point, a truth to remember. Let's continue in verse one. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth yet they have not prevailed against me. I love how the message puts this. He says, they've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they could never keep me down. The Psalm provides two pictures then of how they can't keep us down. This picture of how they're not going to be able to keep us down. This first picture we see is this graphic, raw, bloody scene. It's, it's, it's graphic, it's short in its explanation, but it is a graphic scene. Verse three, the plowers have plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. What's this picture here? You're being stretched out prone. You're being laid out. The enemies have hitched up their oxen and the plows have begun cutting long furrows up and down your back with a plow. Imagine one of those like old timey plows right? With the long, sharp steel blade. You've got two oxen pulling it with the straps and you've got the farmer in the back with these long handles and he's just leaning into the handles, driving the plow. Except in this case, it's not in the dirt, it's into flesh, into your flesh. And he's driving this up and down longer and longer cuts through your back. Long gashes cut into the skin and flesh back and forth systematically. Imagine the whole thing, the blood, the pain, the back and forth, purposeful cruelty. That's what we're seeing here. So a, a passage like this requires us to ask a question. It, it, like I was wrestling with like, how do I, how do I bring that to us this morning? Like what, what does that even look like? I think it forces us to ask this question. When was the last time you felt like someone because of your obedience to Jesus was driving a plow into your back? Like when was the last time because of your obedience to Jesus, you felt like someone was driving a plow into your back? And I think that might be a kind of a difficult question for many of us to answer. 
I think that might be a hard thing for many of us to like wrap our arms around and try to answer. And while we may not be facing some of the same kind of like physical threats that many churches around the world are facing, yet I truly believe that like, if we're truly faithful to the way of Jesus, we will not be able to avoid making hard decisions with real consequences in our lives, like real consequences. Uh, Of course, we live in a polite society and most people, you know, like that we interact with from time to time or or throughout our lives from our day-to-day workplaces and all that, generally people want to avoid awkward situations, right? So they're polite. We keep it above board. It's like, it's light, right? But if we're honest, I think people treat us fairly well because we are so often tempted to keep our heads down a lot of times. Like we're, we're tempted to kind of avoid those awkward situations. So often we can't say just no without coming alongside that and giving this long explanation to try to like soften uh, the blow or round off the corners that kind of like, yeah, I think this, but let me round that off so that we're still okay. So that nothing sounds offensive so that we can kind of choose this middle ground for fear that we'll be seen as like dogmatic about something or uncaring or unsympathetic or um, what we often do is try to kind of muddy the conversation just enough to where it's no more, it's no longer awkward or we're no longer in like a hot seat. Listen, if the world only likes us with smiles, then we haven't said it clearly. If the world only likes us with smiles, then we haven't said it clearly. Our good news is that Jesus had to die for wretched sinners and enemies of God, and that it requires fully submitting to his authority in order to receive his grace. Like, let's, let's like admit it. Let's face it. The gospel is offensive. It is really offensive. It's offensive to me. It's offensive to you. It's offensive to everyone. So what I want to do in these next few moments is try to bring us into that tension just a little bit. What I want to do is name two ways that we're called to display the love of Jesus that is likely to get you a little bit of pushback. Um, so I've thought about lots of different things that we can name. There's dozens of examples that we could jump into right now. But I, I want to jump into a couple of examples that I think are really, really, really clear in Scripture. Like it's just pretty black and white in Scripture. There are also issues that I think most of us struggle with. Like most of us, when you hear these, you're like, oh, that you struggle. And we all are in varying levels of struggling through this. And there are also examples that just kind of like rub against our culture. Like the opposite grain of our culture is moving in the opposite way than what scripture calls us to. So these are pretty clear in scripture. We all struggle with these things. um, And they really do kind of rub against the direction of our culture quite a bit. I want to talk about friendships and marriage. And this will be pretty brief, but I want to help us get into the spot where we feel this tension, this awkwardness, this question mark of what do we do in these moments? So what about your friendships? Think about your friendship circles. How often does Jesus come up in your conversations? Like just ask yourself, like how often does Jesus or like the things that he's done and how that applies to a moment of a conversation, how often does that come up? Like, do you bring him into the room with you? I guess is the question I'm asking. Like, is he there? Do you bring him into that room? Like you have circles of friends with like Christians, I'm sure, right? And you have hopefully friends with unbelievers, like people who don't agree with you about Jesus. And there's probably some overlap there, hopefully as well. 
and you're hanging out with your friends, you know, and you're talking about whatever you hang out with your friends and talk about. I talk about mountain biking a lot, so we'll talk about mountain biking or whatever. But invariably, like in my friendships, like we're going to get into deeper conversations, right? We're going to get into deeper waters. Like real life stuff does come up too. Like we talk about our difficulty at work or my difficulty with my kids, this issue that I'm uh, working through that's, that's really frustrating for me. Now, let me ask you this question. If you're committed to following the ways of Jesus, do you ever bring those ways into that conversation? Like, do you, if you're committed to following his ways, do his ways come into those conversations? I'm not talking about like chapter and versing somebody. Like anytime anybody brings anything up about anything that contradicts Jesus, you're like chapter and verse right back to him. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real conversation where you're honestly wrestling with the ways of Jesus in the midst of this issue. But when someone is worried, like when someone's worried about their future, when they're anxious about something, when they're struggling through like self-pity or their self-image or pride or gossiping, like, do you ever ask yourself the question, what does Jesus say about that? Like, and then do you ever like step toward that? Give voice to that? Give like witness to that? Do you ever ask, does Jesus like, what does Jesus say about that? And how do I step into that and be a voice in this conversation for him? See, when they share about what they last did last week, and it obviously doesn't align with how Jesus would have them live, how do you respond? Like, if they're a Christian, do you keep your head down and not speak the truth and love because you don't want to be seen in a certain light? Man, if that's the case, what does that say about your friendship? Or, or what does that say about your commitment to follow Jesus to where he's going? Like, what does it say about how you want to follow Jesus, your willingness to follow him into hard places? <clears throat> if that conversation's with an unbeliever, like, do you share the hope that they have for a better life, the good life that Jesus provides in contrast to what they're pursuing? Like this beautiful picture of what Jesus can offer them, does that ever make itself into your conversation? And maybe you're wondering like, man, how on earth would I even do that? Like, I can't imagine doing that in a way that'd be helpful and all this different stuff, man. But if we're in our Bibles and personally applying those words of Jesus and following those things in our own lives and trying to stumbling and failing for sure, but trying and stumbling and trying to apply those in our own lives, I think it can look like just inviting people into our own journey, into our own story, into the ways that we're trying to follow Jesus. And Obviously, there's good ways and unhelpful ways to go about these conversations, but my point here is real simply, are they happening at all? Like, are these conversations happening at all in your relationships? The reality is when we do this, I think we can expect to lose some friends. But I also expect that we will gain brothers and sisters who see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and are also willing to pick up their own cross and follow him alongside you. Man, don't we want that? Okay, we got through that one. We're still here. Let's move on to marriage. Let's move on to talking about our marriages. Okay, so husbands and wives, do you offend the world by the way you relate to one another in your marriage? Like, do, is your marriage offensive to the world? Like, all right, I said this is gonna be really clear in scripture. What I'm gonna step into, I think is really black and white in scripture. I think all of us will agree that we struggle to apply this in one way or another. Like we're all in process here. We're all struggling to apply this. Um, 
And I think it, this, this one really rubs against our culture. I think our culture is headlong going in the opposite direction and has been for decades and decades and decades and decades, right? But Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that our marriages are supposed to be this beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. He, he says very clearly how they picture the gospel. Let me unpack it quickly for you, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions, okay? So wives, you are, Ephesians 5, to submit to your husband's. And husbands are supposed to lead by laying your life down for your wife. That's the picture here. Paul tells us that when wives help by submitting and husbands lead through self-sacrifice, that it's like giving the watching world this giant, beautiful picture of the love of Jesus in the gospel. It's this display, it's this picture of his love for his church. And here's the picture. Let me show it to you. Let me try to show, show it to you as, uh, clearly as I know how. When a wife submits to her husband, it images the church submitting to the authority of Jesus. Like, think of this, think of this, picture this. When you became a Christian, you joined the precious church that Christ gave his life for with all of its gifts and inherent beauty, submitting to the authority of Jesus. Wives, you get the beautiful opportunity to image this to image to our watching world, this beautiful relationship of the church to Christ in your marriage. It's meant to be beautiful. Now, side note, this is not a sermon on marriage and marriage roles. So man, we could do a whole series on what I just said right there. And we've done series like that. So if you have questions about like definition or what does this mean, but what about this situation and all these different things that might be questioning or boiling up in you right now, Hey, we've got sermons on our website. Go check out Ephesians 5. You can uh, get some great sermons on marriage roles. If you want some resourcing, come to me. I'd love to resource you as well. But what I would like for you to do, let me ask you, could you set those things aside just for a moment and just hold on to what I'm trying to have us all hold on to for a moment. Hold on to this, that the wife is meant to picture this beautiful picture of the church submitting to Jesus. She gets to image that, hold on to that. Here's what the husband gets to image. When a husband leads self-sacrificially, laying his life down for his wife, he images the love of Jesus, willing to die for those who are his own. Men, you are called to strong masculine leadership in your home, but not the way the world would have you do it. Not domineering, not the way the world would have you go about it. Actually, like, don't forget here, the comparison is to Jesus. Don't forget that leading here is compared to Jesus having thorns jammed into his head and hung on a cross. Your leadership in your home is to picture to the world this beautiful savior self-sacrificing for those he loves. These pictures are meant to display something beautiful to the watching world. So here's a couple of questions. First, husbands, would your wife characterize your leadership as initiative taking? Would she characterize it as pouring out, self-sacrificing, providing, strong? Would she characterize it in those ways? That is how you're to image the gospel to her and to the world. Wife, are your friends seeing pictures of Jesus's love by the ways you are joyfully respecting your husband? Like, would they give witness to that? Your joy in the ways that you relate to your husband as you respect him and submit to his leadership. 
Man, with an image like this on full display in our marriages, I imagine it means more people in your life, like your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your kids for sure, because they're watching you every day. When they see this, they're probably gonna be pretty curious and definitely like puzzled by what they compare it to in other aspects of their life. When they compare that to their own experience or what they see in other places, they're gonna be puzzled by this. They're actually gonna be, many of them, maybe get upset, maybe personally offended. At the least, it causes some really interesting conversations, right? And I've been wondering, as I've been like chewing on this reality, is it possible that one of the reasons we do not have people coming to faith in Jesus in our community is because we're not seeing the beautiful picture of the gospel on display in our marriages. Like, or, or perhaps it's there, but it's like hidden behind doors. Like no one's curious, no one's offended, no one's caught up by the beautiful mystery of the gospel. Is Christ on display there? Is he on display? Okay. Hey, that's not meant to be a jab. That's not meant to be something like that I'm jabbing us with. This is meant, my goal here is to like raise our imaginations and our affections for how God has called us to live as the people of God and begin asking questions. What, why am I not feeling resistance for this? Like, is, it, is there something that I need to receive here that isn't getting that pushback that is so promised for me here? And the reality is like, we're all tempted to keep our heads down. Like, that's just... Like, let's, let's just be honest. We're all tempted to keep our heads down. Yes, the suffering, the hardship, the persecution, and all these different things. But, um, man, you can only take so much. Like, so we pull back. We resist. Uh, like, we, we lower our heads. But go back with me to this picture of the plow. Go back with me to this picture of the plow. There's this suffering. There's this hardship. And this is why I chose this psalm. But then suddenly the realization that there's no more hurting. Verse four, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. See the oxen were still trampling back and forth. The enemies are still calling out their commands to the oxen, but somehow the plows aren't moving anymore. See the plows have stopped. That's the picture here. God has ripped the harness of the evil plowman to shreds. See, this is actually a comedic picture. It's, it's meant to make us like laugh a little bit. Here we have the enemy still working hard. They believe they're causing damage while they're still moving along with their plans. They haven't noticed that the plow has stopped cutting way behind them. God has cut the cords. They think that they're doing something, but actually like they're just wasting their time and energy trying to do something against God's people. And here's what I want you to remember. When you suffer hardship for the faithfulness to Jesus, for your faithfulness to him, their efforts are worthless. That's what this psalm is trying to tell you. Efforts against your faithfulness to Jesus are worthless. And then the, the second image, what about the withered grass? It tells a similar story, but from a slightly different angle. Opposition to God's people is like grass in a shallow, in shallow ground. That's the point here. Two fields, wheat is growing in these two fields. One is planted in deep, rich, dark soil. The other just a couple inches of soil and beneath it, flagstone, like a, a giant piece of stone that the dirt is on. From your vantage point as you walk by, they look like the same field. The wheat pops up quickly, looks healthy, looks like two fields, looks identical. The summer heat comes and the roots go down to get more moisture and so the plant can mature and one field withers away. That's the point. That's the point here. No harvest there. 
no life, no reapers going out, wasting their time here. No one's going to be walking by this field saying, hey, great harvest you got there. God's blessing to you. That's what he's saying. Nobody's gonna be doing that to, those, to that field. Here's what I want you to remember. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the world that is so opposed or indifferent to God, when it seems like you're struggling and they're doing just fine, when it looks like their harvest is coming in, remember this world is always caught up with brief enthusiasms. The, it, like grass that quickly springs up in shallow dirt, it comes with almost no effort and it withers away just as quickly. It, it may look like a good harvest is coming in, but you need to remember that they will quickly wither away so no one is walking by going, got a, got a great lawn there. You got some great looking grass there. Nobody's saying that. Just give us some time. We'll see what outlasts what. Now, they may hurt you, but their efforts are like someone trying to plow a field, thinking they're trampling all over you and cutting up God's promises. But in reality, they're completely unaware that they're plow had been left behind long ago. They don't have the ability to do the real, dam like the real damaging stuff. You know, Jesus says, hey, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, right? He says, fear me. I can throw your body and soul into hell. So these two illustrations need to be locked like in our minds. They need to be in our minds as powerful reminders as we move forward. But, but I want to say like, let's admit this here. This is not enough to give us perseverance for this life, I don't think. Like this isn't enough for us to have perseverance in the life. I don't think these reminders do it for us because these reminders are pointers to God. Like these reminders actually point us to who God is and what he has done for us. They remind us that it is God who sticks with us. We see at the middle of this Psalm, this cornerstone really of Psalm 129. Where is perseverance found? Verse four, the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Just right in the middle of the Psalm. The Lord is righteous. He's righteous. He's the one who cuts the cords. He's the one who puts the efforts of the world to shame. Righteous. What is he getting at here? It's talking about us relating to God and him relate, relating to us in a right, good relationship. Him relating to us the way that he longs to relate to us as our creator. One commentator says, righteousness is out and out a term denoting relationship. And it does this uh, in the sense of referring to a real relationship between two parties and not to the relationship of an object under consideration or an idea. So what we're talking about here, when, we, when you read the Lord is righteous here, like we're not talking about a project in God's mind. That's not who we are. We're, we're not like this consideration. We're not just an idea in the midst of your suffering. He doesn't stand at a distance. Our creator God moves toward his creatures that he personally loves and has vested interest in. What gives you the ability to stand against the coming winds in your life? The fact that God sticks with you. The fact that God sticks with you. That's what this Psalm is screaming at us. He is the one who sticks with you so you can walk in his way steady, firmly, persevering, no matter what comes your way. It gives you perseverance because you know it's not on you, it's on him. He's the one who's sticking with you. This is true. His commitment to our relationship, his righteous sticking to us is why so many Christians, especially those who have lived some life, can look back over uh, a long life crisscrossed with casualties, 
um, with unannounced tragedies, unexpected setbacks and sufferings and disappointments and depressions. They can look back across all of these things down this long road and see blessing and make a song out of it. Like that's how this psalm came about. This person wasn't living a sterile life. They were living a hard life. And they looked back over their life. They looked back over all the tragedies and the, uh, all the things that they would not have chosen for themselves. And he wrote a song out of it, out of, God's, uh, out of how God has blessed him. He says, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me and they never could keep me down. This is real perseverance. You see, perseverance isn't doubling down. Perseverance isn't because of something strong in you. It isn't pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and getting to work. It isn't because of your own determination. It's reliance on God's faithfulness and his grace toward you. Perseverance is produced by your reliance on his faithfulness towards you. And if this is the case, then perseverance in your life is the process then of paying more and more attention noticing more and more to the places in, your, places in your life where God's righteousness is the thing that's carrying you. Paying more and more attention to the places where God is actually carrying you through what's difficult, where his grace is sufficient and less and less attention then to your, like, your own efforts, like to the, to the things that would like puff you up, to the things that are getting you through the day. And if that's true, then finding the meaning of our lives is all about banking your hope on God's will and purpose for your life found in the Bible. Like if it's all based on paying more and more attention to his righteousness, then, it, then, then you've got to bank all your hope on him. You've got to put all your faith in him because he's the one that's going to carry you through, not by probing your own moods, not by probing your own motives or your own emotions, not charting the rise and fall of your enthusiasms, but by making a map of God's faithfulness toward you, charting it, writing it down, because it's out of this reality that we gain perseverance. It, it fills us up. It encourages us to keep going because God is for us. And if you need encouragement this morning, like if you're going, <clears throat> I hear what you're saying, even in this brief time as I've heard what you said, it's hard for me to look back. It's hard for me to see places where God has carried me. Or, or maybe you look back on those things and they just, they feel small. Hey, like go to Hebrews 11 this week. I want to encourage you to go through Hebrews 11. If you need encouragement this morning to keep persevering, let me offer you a map of God's faithfulness to his people in Hebrews 11. I believe the, the women's Bible study just wrapped up Hebrews 11. I think that's right. And uh, so you guys have been in it already. But Hebrews 11 is this amazing retelling of these giants in the faith or these people all through uh, scripture who struggled through life. Like God offered them promises, uh, like, like he offered promises, real promises for them to grab hold of. And they foiled it with their own sin. They screwed it up with their own mistakes. They didn't see it, so they chose something else. Or uh, they like uh, experienced his love and his uh, caring through those moments. Like it's just a jumbled up place of all these people with all the complexities that we have in this room who are normal, everyday people that God saw, loved, moved toward. And by faith, they experienced God's righteousness toward them. And it's just this retelling of person after person that by faith, 
They trusted him to carry them through. And it's just this long chapter saying, you can have this kind of faith too. In the midst of your own struggles, in the midst of your own pulling back, in the midst of your own doubt, you can have this kind of faith too. Do it. Run to him. He can give you that. So then in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews launches into this encouragement. He says, therefore, since we have we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all of these people who have run the difficult race and they finished, like they did it. They ran it to the end. They had perseverance. God carried them. He was righteous towards them. Let us also lay aside every weight. Like the things that are holding us back, the things that we're tempted to hold on to, let them go. Let go of the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's also set before us looking to Jesus, right? Not to your own strengths, not your own endurance, not your own effort, not your own determination. The founder and perfecter of our faith, he's the one who does it, who for the joy that was set before him, he counted it joy. He counted it a joy. He endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? He endured the cross. He went through the suffering so that you can actually persevere and endure. And then even in the Psalm where it says, God, would you shame these other people? He, dis- he, he shamed them by his glory, by his might. Man, that is our hope this morning, that Jesus is enough. Jesus himself is the one that will carry you through to the end. So I wanna pray that for us as we move to the communion table. Will you uh, stand and pray with me? So Jesus, as we come before you now, I mean, I have no idea what this psalm is doing in the hearts of all of us in this room. What it's doing for me right now is just making me warm to you. Like it's, I'm saying yes. So God, if there's brothers and sisters in this room who say that too, God, would you right now where they're um, up against places where they're going, what's holding me back? What are the places of my own um, comfort, the own places where I feel like, yeah, I want to endure. I want to move forward, but there's this thing that's holding me back. God, would Hebrews 12 speak to them that you are worth it and that we would set anything aside, anything that holds us back from you, that we would set every weight, every sin, even sins that we've already confessed, but somehow they're still like uh, tormenting us. We haven't set it aside. God, would you heal us there that we because of your son, we truly are forgiven. God, would you right now minister to your people as we consider um, what you did for us and the requirements on us for us to receive that, to set everything aside. So God, as we come now to receive communion, uh, remind us that is because of your broken body and because of your shed blood that we have any any right to come before you. The right is totally on your side of the equation, that you have earned it for us. So God, would you humble us before your word, before your might? When we come and take communion, we would experience the joy of our salvation because it it wasn't on us. So would you give that as a gift to us this morning? And if you're coming to celebrate 
communion this morning. The way we celebrate is you simply come to one of the lines here in the front, middle, or both sides of the balconies, tear a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. The stoneware is wine, the glass is juice, and we have an allergy option over here to my right. Um, Yeah, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come and take communion and celebrate that Jesus alone uh, saves, that Jesus alone uh, offers you uh, salvation before God. Now, if you're not a Christian, we, we encourage you to stay in your seat. Like this is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us, not of what we've done for ourselves, of what we can earn. So we encourage you to read or to um, read the prayers in your seat back if you want some language on how you can bring that before God. I actually encourage you to bring those questions. Like I, I, I bet I've kicked up some questions in your mar- mind and in your heart. I would just encourage you to bring those to God himself and ask him those things. Now, ask him if he's real, if he really truly is enough that he can give you perseverance for this life and where true hope is found. Um, If you wanna talk to someone about that or pray about that, we'll have uh, people here in the front and on the side here that would love to pray with you and for you as well. But what we're celebrating at communion is that this psalm, says that because of the grace of Jesus, because of God's love for you, he has cut the straps so that you are not destroyed. But what's mind-boggling to me is the very son of God, the night he was betrayed, asked the father to cut the straps, to let it go so that he wouldn't have to suffer. And God looked him in the face and said, no. Like God told him, no. And he let him be pummeled. Like he literally let his back be ripped to shreds so that his blood would be shed so that we could know his love so that our sins could be covered. If that is your hope, that is the offensive, beautiful message of the gospel that we celebrate every week. If that's your hope, we invite you to come and take communion and you can come and take communion uh, as, uh, as you feel led. We encourage you to stay in your seat, pray through that, ask God to meet you here. And when you're ready, come and take.